is a pleasure to be here with you this morning, and uh, I had the blessing of visiting with you all, goodness, last spring, That's the, this is only my second time with you, and uh, I'm honored that Bruce asked me to, to come and give you the word this morning. Uh, this may, my passage doesn't seem like an, an Advent passage, and I'll admit that I didn't prepare it with Advent in mind, but it is about Jesus, and that's what Advent's about, so it's fitting. Uh, so before we get into this passage, and thank you for being here, it means a lot, it's great. Uh, to give you some context of, of Colossians, because we're jumping right into the middle of the book. Colossians, uh, the, 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 the church in Colossae was a young church, it was a growing church, uh, but they were being tempted to believe that they needed to add to the gospel. They needed something more than Jesus to experience the fullness of life, in essence, they were being challenged to believe it was Jesus plus something to, to experience what life is all about. Fullness, wholeness, uh, really communing with God. And Paul's message throughout this book is really is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That you cannot add to what Jesus has already done for us. That we ha- he has given us everything in himself. His work is complete. Uh, and, and this passage in particular... Paul is exhorting the believers in Colossae and us by extension to fight against the temptation to add, uh, against the pressure to add to Jesus, the things that the world around us says we need in addition to him. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of people that say Jesus is fine and all, but, but you need more than him. And in this particular passage, Paul is urging us, the believers, to fight against adding religious experience, the the things that surrounding religious culture we're adding and saying you need Jesus in addition, you need these things in addition to Jesus, to feel more acceptable, to feel more righteous before God and others, and then to experience deeper communion with God. So with that, it's kind of a broad introduction, uh, let me pray before we jump right in. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it, Lord, even though it was written thousands of years ago, it is for us today as much as it was for the original audience. So I pray, Lord, as we sit here in this Advent season of 2020, that you would open our hearts to your truth. Lord, that you would remove anything that would distract us from hearing your word. Holy Spirit, that you would move powerfully in all of us to hear what we need to hear today, and apply it, and live it for your glory, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Several years ago, I I heard a a pastor ask a question that struck me so much, and that I have actually used that now regularly as a part of my meeting with, when I meet with people, when I counsel them, when I disciple them. I use this question as well. And the question is this. What is the look on God's face as he's looking down on your life right now? What's the, what do you see? I mean, we know God, God is a person. We know he, God the Father is not physical. But if you imagine him looking down on you, how does he feel about you right now truly? Most of us would say, well, Chris, I, I know God loves me. But the real issue is in the day-to-day of the world, how does he feel about me? Maybe the, another follow-up question to that would be, 
what can you do to change it? What could you do to change it? Maybe getting at it a little differently, what's the look on God's face as he looks over your life, particularly when you really mess up, when you really have given into that sin or, or you've, you've struggled with the sin years after year after year, and you've fallen into it one more time? What's the look on his face? How does he feel about it? Or conversely, when things have gone especially well for you, you're going to church, you're praying more regularly, you're reading your Bible, you're giving more. You've even started to have conversation, spiritual conversations with coworkers or neighbors. What's God's look on your face then? And again, what can you do to change that look or to change how he feels about you? The, the point of those questions, the idea, if, if, if I think in any way I can change God's approval or acceptance of me by how, by what I do or how I act, that's what Paul is challenging the believers in Colossae and therefore us to fight against in this passage. He makes the argument uh, with two exhortations and with one rebuke. First, the two exhortations. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. He says, uh, he says here, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And then he also says, let no one disqualify you. Those are very related. The first one, let no one pass judgment on you, is a judicial term, of course, with the context of a legal term, with the context of a, of a courtroom setting. The other is a sports term in the context of an arena, uh, passing judgment or disqualifying. And here he's saying, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one convince you that you're guilty, that you're unacceptable. Let no one disqualify you, in essence, take you out of the race because you aren't practicing certain rituals, you aren't following certain rules, you don't have certain spiritual experiences that others may have. Or you don't have special knowledge that, that others may. I don't know about you, but I have actually experienced both of those things. I've experienced both being uh, passed judgment on in a court of law. I've, more than once, I have been declared guilty for going a little bit over the speed limit, I have to admit. Um, and I have been declared, I have been disqualified. Uh, and neither one is any fun. Neither one are enjoyable. The, the disqualification came uh, when I was in eighth grade. When eighth grade, I, I figured out the fall of eighth grade year that I could run. I could run distance. I didn't know that before. Uh, so I ran cross country my uh, eighth grade year in the fall, and then I ran track in the spring. So I was a miler in track. That was the longest distance we had in eighth grade. And I won every single race that spring except for one. The only race I didn't win was the championship, the regional championship race uh, for our, our school district in that area. And, and because I got disqualified. See, I had this really strange way of running the mile that frustrated endlessly my coach and my dad who would come and, and cheer for me. Because inevitably I would run, the, there's four laps in the mile. We'd run four laps around the track. And inevitably after the first three laps, I was behind. For whatever reason, I, I would be a few yards, even up to 50 yards behind. But for some reason, I always had enough energy to kick it through to the end, that last lap. I'd, I'd start sprinting, I'd start speeding up, and, and inevitably by the end, even if it was by just a hair, uh, I would win. Now, this region, this, la this championship meet, the last meet of the year, same thing was happening, but there were a lot more guys running, of course, because it was all the schools in the, in the region. And I was, last lap, 
bell rings, and I notice there's guys about 20 yards ahead of me. I can't remember how many, but I, I've got work to do. But the same thing happens. Go around the first turn. I'm catching up. I pass a couple around the back stretch. I'm catching up more and more. And then that final turn, as I'm making that final turn, uh, there's three guys in front of me, one directly in front of me and one right next to me. And I can't do what I usually do and, and go out because I'm boxed in. And I know that if I stop and try to get around this guy who's on my right, that I'll, I'll, I'll be ruined my stride and my, my kick would be ruined and I may not win. But I thought the guy in front of me was just a little over to the right, so I thought I could squeeze into him on the left side, on the inside of the track. And so that's what I did. I ran, and again, right at the finish line, I finish. I'm first. I'm excited. My teammates are cheering. And then I hear that I made a mistake. See, the rule says you can step one time on an inside line of the track. You can't step twice, and I stepped twice. So even though I finished the race first, I didn't count. And not only did I not win, it didn't count. I didn't, my race didn't matter. Our team got third place instead of first place because my first place score didn't count. Obviously, that was, that was devastating. That was for an eighth grade boy who thought he was the champion of the region, which doesn't sound like a big deal now, but man, at the time, it was everything to me. That hurt. And what Paul is saying in this passage, brothers and sisters, is don't let others convince you either that you're guilty or that you're disqualified because you're not doing certain things that the religious culture around you says you must do to be accepted, to add to Jesus. As if trusting in your righteousness and acceptance by God by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, is lacking something, is somehow insufficient for all the blessings that we have in Christ. And Paul, in this passage, speaks of three areas where we'll be tempted to add to Jesus. Jesus plus this, to earn something or to gain something more. And all three of these, religious rituals, spiritual experience, and rule following, all three are related because they're all forms of legalism. See, legalism isn't just the idea that, that somehow I can earn my salvation by what I do or my acceptance or my approval by God. Legalism also says that, uh, that by accomplishing something, I can gain increased favor with God. And that's what Paul is challenging us to fight against. Ultimately, the idea that we can earn salvation, well, I, I said, I'm sorry, that it says, legalism says that Jesus plus my efforts, my obedience, my keeping certain rules or rituals or doing them just right is equal to God's approval, his acceptance, his being declared righteous or experiencing more communion with him. He just likes me. He's just happy with me and so therefore embraces me more deeply or, or gives me the things that I want. And the first one of those that he wants to, to challenge us to fight against is the ceremonial laws of the Jews. We see that in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink with regard to festivals or a new moon or the Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but its substance belongs to Christ. What he's saying here, and it's important to understand, is that most of many of the believers in Colossae come from a Jewish background. And as we know, the Jews had all these ceremonial laws that they were required to follow. And there was a group of folks in the Colossi church, Judaizers, who were trying to convince the church that to be true Christians, to truly honor God, meant not only to trust in Christ, but also to fulfill those ceremonial laws. You had to do both. In essence, 
They said it was Jesus plus Judaism that gave you what you needed. And Paul is saying, no, that they missed the point. The ceremonial laws were there for the Jews in the Old Testament to point to the coming Messiah. That, that, that these were fulfilled when Jesus came, and therefore they're no longer of any value. Paul's words here, he says, they're a shadow of, of the reality which is Jesus. These ceremonial laws, Passover and all the sacrifices and all those things that were required of them ceremonially, Paul says they were a shadow of the reality. And now that the reality is here, they're pointless. They, they have no value. It, we can think of it as, as a road sign. If you're driving down the road and you see a sign ahead saying curve ahead, that sign is valuable. It's telling you what's coming so you can be prepared. But once you hit that curve, the sign has no value. You're already there. You see, and so that's what Paul is saying here. In essence, the reality is here. The sign is therefore no longer needed. Enjoy the reality of it. Experience the reality of it. The next area he's talking about is spiritual experience. And he says this in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about vision visions we can think about that it's this spiritual experience these days what might that look like um, i remember particularly several years ago and I, I not as much anymore at least certainly in our circles it might have been something like speaking in tongues there are certain groups and if you don't speak in tongues you're not really saved so that's a sign of god's approval that's a sign that you're really in the group uh, but for us, I think it, it could even be some kind of, it can be knowledge. We can feel more approved by God by what we know. We know the Bible better than others. We know our theology better than others. And particularly in reform groups, I think this is a particular challenge because I know for me and I know a lot of folks that, that didn't grow up in a reformed church or even that do think we've got it more right than the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ out there. Therefore, because we've got it right, our theology is more accurate, we know more of it than others, that we're more approved by God, that it makes us better than them in some way, that, that we've got this special knowledge. And, and it's a very appealing to think this because we all like to think that we have inside information. We all like to think that we're part of a special club that others aren't. And it makes us feel more accepted. It makes us believe wrongly that we're closer to God and God's happier. Now, I want to say this, and you need to hear me. As a PCA pastor, of course, I love our theology. I believe that Reformed theology and covenantal theology is more accurate than all the other options out there. It more accurately represents the teaching of Scripture. But holding it doesn't mean that God loves me more. Holding it doesn't mean that I'm better or more godly or more sanctified than our Arminian or dispensational brothers and sisters. I hope it results in us being more humble and us loving God and loving others or trusting one another in our way of life. But it doesn't add to the work of Jesus on my behalf in any way. It's always a challenge. So it's always tempting to do that. And the third one that Paul, the third category Paul preaches against that he says to fight against. So he said to, to, to fight against uh, religious rituals, to fight against spiritual experience, and now to fight against rules. And this is in verse 20 through 22. He says, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to this regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
referring to things that all perish as they are used. Now here he's talking basically about rules. We set up rules that we can follow so that we can feel more righteous about ourselves and more righteous with God. We do this in every area of our lives. Rules we make for ourselves and others that sound kind of right, but but for us are standards that we have to make ourselves feel more righteous by keeping them and, and enable us to judge others who fail to keep them. A major one in I've been around a lot of churches, and a major one that I've experienced throughout my 25 years of being a CCA pastor is education, how we educate our kids, whether it, it's Christian school, homeschool, or public school. And each one of those groups who have made those decisions, those particular decisions, can point to some precept, some biblical truth as to why their decision is the right one. And I have been in churches and have heard of churches that almost split over those arguments of what is the right way to educate your kids. And we can use that. We can make these rules. If you are a faithful parent, you have to be doing this this way. We can use those rules to make us feel like we're doing it right and God is more pleased with us and we're safe. There are others from more mundane areas. Some have driving righteousness. Some have parenting righteousness. Some have have being thoughtful righteousness, working hard righteousness, using proper grammar righteousness, being on time righteousness, which is one that's very foreign to me. It can, all those things can be good things. But when we use them to make us feel better about ourselves as if God is more pleased with me and he's less pleased with you, then we have fallen into legalism. We have fallen into why, why is this so wrong? It is so simple. We all recognize it in our lives. We all do this regularly, or we're tempted to do this regularly. Why is it so wrong? Paul tells us that in verse 23, when he says, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They seem right in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The first reason legalism is wrong is because it has no power to deal with our greatest problem, our sin, our flesh. Our real problem is a heart problem. And when we think we can deal with a heart problem by following a bunch of rules, or by making some rules or hoops to jump through that makes us better, we're really just rearranging deck chairs in that Titanic. It's a lot like thinking that if I go to the hairstylist and get a different haircut, a different hairstyle, somehow that'll fix my heart disease. It doesn't work that way. Our biggest problem is an internal problem, a heart problem. The only hope for that is surgery by the great physician, by, being, by the transformation that comes through the power of the gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through being united to Christ. That's what makes us approved of by God. That's what enables us to be transformed, to be pleasing to Him. In fact, he says, Instead of curtailing our sin, legalism simply adds to the, the feeding of the flesh. In verse 18, when he talks about let no one disqualify you, insisting on, on certain acts and religious experiences, asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail, he says, puff up without reason by this sensual mind. It puffs us up with pride, with self-righteousness. It says, look at how I'm living. It makes it all about me, what I've done. Yes, I know Jesus, you've done this for me, but I'm adding to it. Look, I'm 
look what I'm doing. Aren't you proud of me? I've got it right, or at least more right than you. It turns us inward, focuses on ourselves, our work, instead of looking at Jesus and his work and what he's done for us. Theologian and author J.I. Packer says this, So far then, from enriching our relationship with God, legalism in all its forms does the opposite. It puts that relationship in jeopardy, and by stopping us focusing on Christ, it starves our souls while feeding our passions. But most importantly, the reason that legalism is wrong is because when we try to add to Jesus, we don't get more, we get less, and we even lose him when we hold him in. In verse 19, Paul says, not holding fast to the head, When I reach for things other than Jesus, I lose my grasp of him. Legalism says that adding to Jesus is the means to get closer to God. But in the reality, it moves us further away from him. When I grasp for things other than him, for righteousness or acceptance, I don't gain more righteousness. I don't gain more of God's love, more peace, more hope, more security. I let go of those things because I let go of the one who is the source of all of it. He alone is the source of ultimate security and peace and righteousness. And since Jesus is the core of the gospel, when we lose focus on him, when we lose our grip on him, we lose our grip on the gospel. Again, J.I. Packer says this, any plus that requires us to take action in order to add to what Christ has given us is an insult to Christ because basically it's saying, Jesus, you didn't do enough. I have to add to what you've done to get my full acceptance in you. You didn't do enough. I've got to do more to make up that lack so that God will love me the way I am. So that God, I can, so I can prove to God that I'm worthy of getting the things that I want, the things that I've given to him. And here's his rebuke in verse 20. He says, if, you, if with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? In Christ, you've died to this world. You've died to the way this world operates. Why are you still living that way in the world? Why are you putting yourself under its rules and regulations? You are freed from the bondage of the law. Why do you put yourself back under bondage to it? It's like winning an all-expense-paid trip to Europe. And instead of taking it, you you, you, you say, throw me in prison for two weeks instead. Right? Who would do that? Why? would you do that? Who would do that? Many of us, though, do it unwittingly, and that's why Paul needs to warn us against this, because it is so enticing. Even though we know it's wrong, and even though we read these words and we hear Paul say, don't do it because you lose, you don't lose Jesus eternally, but in the day-to-day fellowship with him, you lose that communion with him when you try to grasp these other things. He says, He needs to warn us against it because it is so enticing. We may know in our heads it's wrong. But but it's so tempting to live that way. And we embrace it far more than we'd like to admit. For one, rules indeed have the appearance of wisdom. He says that in verse 23. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, severity of the heart. Why do they appear why do they appear to have wisdom? Because this is the way the world works. The world works 
in a performance-based acceptance mentality. You perform well, you're accepted, you're declared worthy of respect or approval. You perform poorly, you're declared unworthy, unworthy of respect or approval. You study hard, you get good grades. You work hard, you get promoted. You, you're nice, you do nice things, and people like you and think well of you. This attitude the performance-based acceptance feeds uh, one of the formulas for success that our culture has assumed to be true. Knowledge plus hard work equals success or approval. And the Judaizers and Colossae are simply adding Jesus to that. Jesus plus hard work plus knowledge equals fullness, equals God's approval, equals acceptance, equals success. And in biblical terms, success is God's map. But God's map is different. As you've already heard me say, God's map is Jesus plus nothing equals God. And that everything includes God's approval, our union and our communion with him that leads to obedience and good works. See, good works are part of the equation, but they're part of the backside of the equation. They're part of the everything that we get as a result of, of the Holy Spirit in, uh, abiding in us, filling us. We do good works as a result of what Christ has done, not to add to what he has done. But secondly, why is it so enticing? It's because it appeals to our pride, which is always at work in us, no matter how long we've been followers of Jesus our pride desperately wants to think that we are accepted by God somehow by something that I've done. Or part of me makes me more acceptable than you so I can pat myself on the back. Our pride desperately wants to think that we're acceptable, acceptable to God because of our efforts. Or at least because our efforts are better than some of those around us. As one author put it, we are by nature allergic to God's grace, addicted to self-deliverance. Such is the measure of the insanity of sin. Every day, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we can recognize that every day we're tempted to, to pull, we're, we're under the, the pull to focus our attention and our achievements and accomplishments on ourselves, our achievements, our accomplishments, and to compare ourselves to others. And over time, we can slowly lose our grip on the gospel, get influenced by others, and move towards legalism and, and moralism. There's a tendency for most Christians to move slowly over time because the message, we hear it over and over again, the beautiful message of the gospel, we hear it so often that it's a temptation to move away from it that, that we slowly begin to rely on other things to prove our guarantee, to prove our rightness before the Lord. And therefore, again, we are to fight against that temptation. How? We see the warning. We know why it's wrong. Know why it's enticing, therefore, how do we fight? We fight by continually going back to the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves of what is true, what we have in Christ, what we have in Christ through being a, a part of, and how do we do that? By being a part of a gospel-centered church like Christ Presbyterian, by attending worship services, small groups, by walking with other believers, by reading the word, by meditating on scripture through prayer, by the means of grace that we'll be practicing and, and engaging in a little bit. And preaching the gospel consistently over and over again is what Paul does in this letter to the Colossians. Over and over he reminds the people of what they have in Christ, what he's done for them. He reminds, he, he warns them 
the foolishness of trying to move away from Christ toward other to our own efforts, to abide in him through the power of the Holy Spirit. What's the gospel that we're to preach to ourselves and to others? What's the truth that we would embrace? I want you to hear and just listen what Paul has already described in Colossians alone, in this letter alone, about what is Christ. Because if you notice, when this passage is read, there's that, that short but important word, therefore. Everything I've shared rests on what came before. And what came before is the gospel. Listen to what he says about what is true for those of us who are resting in Christ and what he's done for us. For those of us who are trusting in him for our salvation. This, and listen to the words that are repeated. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He created all things. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church and all the fullness of God dwells in him. Through him, he is reconciling all things to himself, making peace between us and God. You who were once alienated from God doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by his death. To present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And in Christ we are hidden, uh, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, Paul says, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised in your heart, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. You who were dead in your sin, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses canceling the record of your debts. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ conquered all your spiritual enemies in taking their weapons away from them and made, and made them march the march of shame as defeated enemies by triumphing over them in him. All this, brothers and sisters, we have in Christ already by grace through faith. What more can any of us possibly add to that by following certain rules or jumping through certain hoops? It's because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his life and death on our behalf, that Paul exhorts us as true followers to put off, to not let anybody disqualify you, to don't let anybody pass judgment on you. Don't be swayed by that temptation to, to make it Jesus plus. Don't let others pass judgment on you. Why? Because the one true judge has already passed judgment on you, and he has declared you not guilty because his son is so guilty, declared guilty in our place. Don't let others disqualify you from the race. Why? Because Christ has already finished the race for you on the cross with his arms stretched out as he was dying. He declared it race has been run. He ran it in your place. The victory is his. And therefore it's yours if you are in him. No one can declare you guilty. No one can disqualify you. If you are resting in him alone. 
I want to close by reading my favorite song in Christ alone by Grace Kelly. Hear these words. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. This gift of love and hope. Scorned by the ones who came to save us. For on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in death, I live. There in the ground, his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse is lost and broken. For I am his. He is mine, all for him. No guilt in my heart, no fear of death. This is how I trust and live. From life's first cloud of final doubt, Jesus, Jesus died. No power, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns, oh, shall we be glad. Here in Christ alone.